Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. Now, as we've been going through the book of Genesis, starting from last week, we've, we've hit the last section, so to speak, of this book of Genesis where in the generations of Jacob, or in other words, what became of Jacob's family. And last week we saw of how Jacob still had some of his old sins, where he favoured his beloved dead wife's son, Joseph, more than anyone else, any of his other sons. And he loved him more and gave him a special court. And all of this, and then the particular dream that Joseph had that he would rule over his brothers, all of this continued to create more hatred among the brothers toward Joseph. And ultimately we saw of how Joseph was sold as a slave to Egypt. And the brothers deceive Jacob saying, you know, bringing the coat of Joseph dipped in a goat's blood saying, he's killed by an animal. And last week as we finished, we saw of how Jacob is in severe grief. He's unconsolable. But Joseph is alive and well and he's somewhere in Egypt. And as we come to Genesis 38, suddenly there's an interruption. Interruption from what's going to happen to Joseph. And here in this passage, we will come to read much about Judah. And you might wonder why this interruption? Well, really, there's There's several reasons why, and let me try and explain why this chapter comes here suddenly in between what's happening with Joseph. Well, first of all, it's not an interruption. Because in the past few chapters, we've seen how Reuben, the firstborn of Jacob, has disqualified himself as the firstborn son because of what he did to his father's wife. Then we saw the next two brothers. They disqualified themselves. Reuben, uh, uh, Levi, and Simeon, they disqualified themselves because of massacring the people in Shechem. And then we saw last week how somewhere in there, there, this person, this fourth son, fourth oldest son named Judah pops up. He was the guy who said, let's sell Joseph as a slave rather than just killing him and let's make a profit. And the brothers actually listen to him. They go with that plan than actually listening to the plan of Reuben. So this This brother, Judah, is slowly emerging 
as a leader amongst his brothers. And so the question must be asked, so what of Judah? Yes, Joseph has gone away, but is anything going to happen with Judah? And in fact, the other question that must be asked is all 12 sons of Jacob will become the 12 patriarchs. They will become the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. But only one son through one son will go the the seed line through whom the promised Messiah would come. And so we must be asking the question, so who is it going to be through? Is it going to be through Jacob's favorite son, Joseph, or is it this next guy in line named Judah? In fact, this passage, as we look at it, we will see how the beginnings of the tribe of Judah, how their patriarch Judah, how the kind of person that he was. And really, as what we'll see here is Judah in this chapter is assimilating into the Canaanite culture. And his family is being obliterated. The line of Judah is being obliterated. And really, when you think of the grand scheme of things, God is even working through this because Jacob's family is in great danger because the longer they stay in Canaan, different things are happening to them and the Canaanites are invading into this family. So God, ultimately in his kindness and goodness to this family, will take them to the land of Egypt to save them from Canaan at this time. To save this family from destroying themselves as they're in the land of Canaan. So we even get that historical perspective of how they will ultimately lead go into the land of Egypt. And and through this journey, we will see Judah emerge as a changed person and as a transformed person. In fact, this Judah will in fact be through whom the line of the chosen seed will come. But you say, how? So he's a very important figure. Joseph is not the only important figure. Judah is a very important figure. And so this passage will show us of how, the beginnings of how that will come about. It's really a story of the grave sinfulness of Judah and his family and how God rescues him and delivers him, and this is all part of the big plan of redemption for this family and ultimately redemption of the nations of the world. I've titled this morning's sermon, it's quite simple, as there's two major players here, Judah and Tamar. And we're going to look at this passage under two sections. We'll see Judah and his family line in verses 1 through 11. Really the, the danger this 
Judah and his family line are in. They're in danger of being extinct and being totally wiped off. And then in the second section, in verses 12 through 30, we look at Tamar and her plan, and really the success of her plan. So firstly, Judah and his family line. Verse 1. Now it happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. So it says, it happened at that time. At what time? It happened around the time when Joseph was sold as a slave and taken to Egypt. That time when Father Jacob was told that Joseph was killed. And he's in severe distress and grief and he cannot be consoled by anyone. At that time, Judah leaves his home, the home of God's people. Now it may be that, you know, Judah thought, here's my father in grief. He can't be consoled at all. I mean, his favorite son is he thinks he's dead and he's just, even now, thinking that way, he's just obsessing over him. Or maybe Judah is thinking, you know, maybe there's some tensions that are building up with the brothers already and he's had it with this dysfunctional family and he just wants a fresh start. Or perhaps even more so, Judah is looking around in the land of Canaan And he's looking at the Canaanites and he's thinking, you know, there are better ways in which I can make profit out there in the world, in this land of Canaan. But to do that, I need to get out of my family and go there. Remember, he was the one who said, let's sell Joseph as a slave so we can make profit. So he's that kind of a person. What's in it for me? So at that time, Joseph separates from his brothers, separates from his family, and he goes to a nearby Canaanite town called Adullam. And he becomes friends with an Adullamite, a person from that town named Hira. Essentially, Hira is a Canaanite. Now verse 2 says, there, that's in Adullam, Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son. And he called his name Ur. And she conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Kesib when she bore him. So at this place named Adullam, Judah gets married to the daughter of a Canaanite named Shua. Now what's wrong with that? We know from previous passages in Genesis, God's people were not to marry the Canaanites because the Canaanites were godless and immoral people. In fact, even the words here that that describes Judah, Judah saw the daughter and took her, 
We've seen those words repeated again and again and again in the book of Genesis, starting in the garden where Eve saw the forbidden fruit and took it for herself. Or in, in Genesis 6, where it talks about where the, the, the sons of God saw the woman and took them for themselves. Or when Lot saw uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, just what's on the outside, and then he went and uh, to be part of that place. Or e- even when Dinah was defiled by this man named Shechem, it was the same word. He, he saw and then he took. So really, for Judah, this daughter of Shua, She was very attractive in his eyes. And so what does he do? She looks great. I'm going to take her for my wife. This is just pure lust. Judah is not concerned about God or his word. He's not concerned that the person he marries is a godless person. All he cares about is that this person looks attractive to me and will fulfill in some way my fleshly appetites. I want you to think about Judah's downward spiral here. Judah first leaves his home. And particularly in this time, this is God's covenant family. He's separating himself from the covenant family of God, the house of God's people. This is meant to be his safe place. So he separates from there. That's the first thing that he does. Then the next thing that he does is he becomes good friends with this Adulamite guy, a Canaanite guy named Hira. And it looks like in this chapter that whenever Judah is involved in some sin, this man Hira is in his company. And really, the first of those, as he's become such good friends with this guy named Hira, is that in that place, Adullam, he gets married to a godless Canaanite woman from Adullam, right after he becomes friends with this guy. There's a lesson for us here about the influence of the company that we keep. You know, sometimes because of sin, sometimes because of unexpected, you know, unmet expectations, or some other way in which we've been hurt, we are tempted to cut away from God's people and fellowshipping with them. Oh, God's people, they're a dysfunctional lot. I've had it with them. I'm hurt. I'm going to separate from them and not be with them anymore. But as we've talked about numerous times from this pulpit, to be surrounded by God's people is God's means of protecting us and encouraging us and holding us accountable. And when we walk away from the fellowship of God's people, we are bound to suffer spiritually. You will see that again and again in Scripture. 
And so if deep relationships with God's people is for our good, then there's also a danger that we face when we have deep relationships, when we keep deep relationships with ungodly people. Now, we are to be kind and friendly with everyone around, for sure. But we must be careful about forming deep relationships with those who draw us away from the Lord. I mean, this is a warning particularly to the young people here. Now, I'm not saying that we can't have friends who don't know the Lord. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is, We must be careful of the influence that godless people will have in our lives. See, sometimes godless people can be very friendly. They can have very winsome personalities. Here's a godless person. Oh, wow, this person's so great. Here's a, a person who, loves the, who knows the Lord. Not so great. But we shouldn't be tempted then to be like, okay, so therefore my close friends are going to be here. Because the godless way of thinking, the godless way of speaking and living, that whole worldview that is contrary to God's word, we must be careful as we associate and have relationships with godless people that it will not have an influence on us. Proverbs 13.20 says, Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. The question we must be asking ourselves is this, Am I being a godly influence on these people, or are they being an ungodly influence on me? That's the question we should be asking. In Judah's case, he had separated himself from where God's people were. He became close friends with a godless Canaanite, and that further influenced him to just follow his fleshly desires. And he goes and marries another godless Canaanite woman from that region. You know, I wonder if Hira even told Judah, hey, you find that woman attractive? Go ahead. Get married to her. Take her for yourself. Oh, don't, don't let what your fathers have been talking about, you know, never marry a Canaanite. Don't, don't think about any of that. Don't let them hold you back. What's all this God business? And Oh, it's all too restrictive. I wonder if Hirat said something like that even. And so now Judah is married to a Canaanite woman. And from this marriage comes three sons. Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Now let's look at what became of them. That's what the following verses tell us. Verse 6. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord 
put him to death. Now, the text doesn't specifically say what kind of wickedness Ur was involved in, what kind of lifestyle he had. But we can at least conclude this. If Judah the father is blatantly going away from the Lord and his ways, then it's no surprise then, right, that his son Ur lived a wicked life. Again, we've seen this pattern again and again in the book of Genesis. Evidently, Judah wasn't leading his family in the ways of the Lord. And so Ur grew up to be a godless man, and his wickedness became so great that the Lord himself put him to death. And Ur is the first of many individuals that God himself will put to death for their wickedness. So for those of you Bible trivia fans, he's the first individual that has been killed by God for his wickedness in the Bible. So that's Judah's first son. Now Onan, Judah's second son, is no better. Look at verse 8. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring should not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord and he put him to death also. So after the firstborn son dies and leaves Tamar as a widow, Judah tells his secondborn son, Onan, to take Tamar as his wife. Now in this day and age, this might sound very strange to us. But really this was the the custom of the Leverite marriage, which will eventually become part of the law of Israel. And you'll find that in Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 through 10. And according to this custom, if a man died without an heir, then his brother was to marry the widow and then produce an heir for the dead brother. You say, why? Because so that the dead brother's name would go on, that line would go on and the inheritance of that dead brother would also pass on to this heir. So in other words, here's what will happen in this Leverite marriage custom. The son that is born to this second brother would not be raised as his own child but would be raised as the child of the dead brother. And that child would carry on the name of the dead brother and receive all the inheritance of the dead brother. So there's much to lose for the second brother if he gets into such a marriage. And the reason for this custom was that the family line of that dead brother who was meant to be the firstborn would continue on 
And even the widow in her old age would be looked after by her son. Because in those days, childless widows, you know, they were in a bad place. There would be nobody to provide for them after their father was dead. And this is the same issue that comes up in the book of Ruth. For those of you who know the book of Ruth. So this is exactly what Judah tells Onan. Your first oldest brother is dead. Now marry your dead brother's wife and raise up a son for your dead brother. But here's the thing. Onan has no desire to bring up a son in his brother's name so that all the inheritance can go to this other child, even though by blood it is going to be his own child. So what does Onan do? He marries Tamar, but he makes sure that she doesn't get pregnant. You see what's happening here? On the outside, Onan seems like the good guy. The brother who's sacrificially taken on the burden for his dead brother's wife and to perpetuate his dead brother's family line. But really what Onan is doing is this. He's simply using Tamar to gratify himself. He doesn't want to have children. Because those children won't be his and and the inheritance of the dead brother that would really come to him would go to this child and he wouldn't get any of that. So really if you think about it, Onan, he wants to look good in front of others. He wants to be held in high esteem in front of others. He wants the inheritance all to himself of his dead brother. And he wants the pleasures of marriage. Onan is in this marriage simply for what he can get out of this marriage. But he has no real concern for Tamar. He has no concern for his brother or his brother's line. Or in fact, he has no concern even for God. See, Onan has no, response, has no desire to take on the responsibilities that God has given in this marriage, which would be taking care of his spouse and raising up children if God so chooses to bless him with children. Onan says, no, I'm happy to enjoy just the pleasures of marriage, but I don't want the responsibilities that come with it. Why? Because Onan is not going to get much out of it. And so because of that, he's happy to defy God's good purposes in marriage. See, Onan should have never married Tamar if he had no intentions of fathering children with her. That was the point of this marriage. So what does God do? He kills Onan also as judgment for his wickedness. And after the death of his second son, Judah is now left with only one more son. And notice what Judah says to Tamar, verse 11. 
Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. So what does Judah do? Judah tells Tamar, hey, my third son, Shelah, he's, he's too young now. So you go to your father's house and remain there a widow till Shelah grows up. But really, this is a lie on Judah's part. Because that's what the text says there, you know, that the author has given there that he was actually lying. Judah wants to get rid of Tamar because he thinks Tamar is the reason for his two dead sons. And he fears that the same thing will happen to his third son as well. You know, you would think Judah being, you know, part of this covenant family of God, by now Judah would have understood, you know, seeing the wickedness of his sons and the fact that they were dead, he would put two and two together and say, oh, this was God's judgment on them for their wickedness. But Judah is so blind spiritually. He's blind to his own sin. He's blind to the sins of his own sons. And God is nowhere in his worldview. See, in Judah's mind, the issue is not with his, with his sons. The issue is with Tamar. And so he's thinking, you know, almost superstitiously. You know, as though Tamar is some bad luck or bad omen or something of that sort. But there's no God in his thinking. There's no thinking in Judah's mind that this may perhaps be God judging my sons for their wickedness. So what do we see here in this section? Judah, one of the 12 sons of Jacob, he's walked away from the covenant family of God He's become close friends with a, a Dulamite or a Canaanite. He's married a Canaanite woman. Two of his sons are dead because God judged them for their wickedness. And finally, Judah sends his daughter-in-law away thinking she's the one to blame in order to pr protect his last son. Jake, Judah is not in a good place spiritually. And his family line is on the verge of extinction. And this brings us now to Tamar and her plan in verses 12 through 20. Verse 12. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, she went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, she and his friend Hira, the Adulamite. So some time had passed. Judah's wife has died. And after Judah mourns the death of his wife, he goes along with his, his dear friend, the Adulamite, Mr. Hira. And they go to Timnah where his sheep were being sheared. 
Now, sheep shearing time in that culture was a lot like harvest time. It was a time of celebration and partying and drinking alcohol and all kinds of immoral behavior would happen during this time. So verse 13 says, And when Tamar was told, Your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garment and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. So Tamar gets word that her father-in-law Judah is going to shear sheep in Timnah. She knows exactly what happens during that time. But Judah at the same time hasn't kept his word about his third son. Tamar hasn't been given in marriage to Shelah. While all this time, Tamar has been faithfully waiting as a widow to marry Shelah. So now Tamar realizes she's been lied to and she takes things into her own hands. And now that Judah's wife has, and particularly now that Judah's wife has died. So knowing it's sheep sharing time, Tamar, she takes off her widow clothes, wraps herself to look like a prostitute, and even veils her face to conceal her identity. But I want you to understand this. She's not doing this for any man. She's not thinking, okay, I'm going to go ahead and that's what I'm going to be. No, she's specifically doing this to get Judah And I would say this would, this would mean that Ju, uh, Tamar knew the kind of person that Judah was. For her to think that if she dressed up like this and acted this way, Judah would succumb to it. Because she wouldn't have dared to do this if, he wasn't that, if she didn't know that he was that kind of man. And so if she's not going to have Shelah as a husband, then she's going to have Judah. And hopefully through him, have an heir so that the family line would continue. You know, in fact, according to some of the Canaanite practices, if there were no sons to fulfill the duty of this Leverite marriage, the father-in-law could be married to fulfill this duty. So maybe Tamar was also being influenced by some of that thinking as well as she's going toward Judah. And so she comes up with a plan, dresses up as a prostitute, and she's sitting by herself at the entrance to Enaim. Now, Enaim, it means eyes. And literally, where it says she's sitting at the entrance of Enaim could be literally translated as she's sitting at the opening of the eyes. It's ironic because in this act that is carried out, there's a lot of veiling. It's done in disguise. But in the end, Judah's eyes will be opened. So verse 15. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute for she had covered her face. 
He turned to her to, at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? And she answered, I will send to you a young goat from the flock. And, he said, and she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. And then she arose and went away, taking off her veil and she put on the garments of her widowhood. So when Judah saw Tamar dressed up as a prostitute and she was veiled, remember, to satisfy Judah's lust, he asked for her services and in turn offered to pay one young goat. Now in those times, that was a handsome payment. And because Judah didn't have a goat with him, Tamar says, okay, give me something else so I know you will actually give me this payment. Give me a pledge. And she specifically says, give me your signet and cord and staff. Now what's a signet? Modern day times, it's, it's like a seal. So, except that during those times, it was something that was worn with a cord just around the neck. So think like a pendant sort of thing, a big pendant kind of thing that's hanging around your neck. So she says, give me the signet and the seal. And this would be a unique seal, unique seal of Judah. Like we all have our signatures. Everyone would have a different signet. And then she also says, give me also your staff. Now the staff too, typically right at the top of it, there would be some markings of, you know, whose it belonged to and what tribe or clan they came from. So in modern day times, as one theologian said, it would be like saying, give me your driver's license and credit card details along with your password. It has everything that has proof of your identity. But this is exactly what Judah foolishly gives. And he's ready to give essentially anything, give away his life for just this moment of pleasure. And so this happens. The act happens. Tamar then goes off takes off her veil, puts on a widow garment, and goes back to her home. Now Judah, again, now his trusted Adulamite friend. There we go, bad company. Hira, and he sends him to make payment and get his personal identity things from this woman that he had met. Verse 20. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who is at Anayim at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. And also the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own or we shall be laughed at. You see, I, I sent this young goat and you did not find her. 
So Judah sends his trusted friend, Hira, with payment of that young goat. And his friend goes and asks the men of the area, where's the cult prostitute who was at Anayim? Now this term here, cult prostitute, is a different term to the word that was used previously of a prostitute. See, in Canaanite religious practices, they would have temple prostitutes. And men would engage with them to invoke their false gods to bring about fertility in the family. Whether it's having children, whether it's with regards to their livestock, and all of that. And it was just a terrible, immoral practice in the name of religion of the Canaanites. So here, you know, so engaging with a cult prostitute was a very respectable thing in that culture than just with a common prostitute. So you see what Hira is doing here, right? From a worldly sense, he's a good friend. He's covering for his dear friend Judah. And he's making it sound more respectable just in case Judah gets caught. Oh, where's the cult prostitute? You know, it was a religious thing. But he's not able to find such a person and he returns to Judah and tells him exactly what happened. And Judah essentially says, let's not make more inquiries because people might become more suspicious. And let's just hope this problem just goes away. But what's clear is Judah didn't want the people to find out what had happened. Now some time had passed and everything still seems to be under wraps. Verse 24, then it says, about three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burnt. So after three months, Tamar is beginning to show signs that she's pregnant. Maybe she's got morning sickness, maybe she's got a little bump, or, or maybe she's getting more tired, maybe all of the above. And she's clearly been immoral because she was a widow who was to marry the third son of Judah someday. And Judah now gets word of it, and his response is what? Bring her out and let her be burned. What a hypocrite Judah is. He's the guy who's responsible for the pregnancy. And even though he doesn't know at this point that he's the one responsible, Judah is holding Tamar to a standard he's not holding to himself. He can do whatever he wants, uh-uh, but she can't. And if that's not all, so then because of what Tamar has done, what's going to happen to her? She's going to be burnt alive for this. She's going to be killed for what she has done. This is not good at all. Seeing Judah like this and the character of Judah. Now verse 25 says, As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law by the man to whom these belong, I'm pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet, the cord, and the staff. 
So Tamar is now being brought out to be really killed. And so Tamar says, now here's, identify who these belong to. The signet and the cord and the staff. Please identify them. And you know what, what's ironic is, again, this phrase, please identify who this belongs to. It's quite similar to what Judah and his brothers said to their father. Remember last week we saw in Genesis 37, in order to deceive their father Judah, they dipped Joseph's clothes in that goat's blood, brings it to, Joseph, uh, to Jacob, and what did they say? Oh, please identify whose cloak this is. Judah is getting a taste of his own medicine. And he's realizing that he has been deceived by Tamar, and he was the one who was responsible for the wrong done to Tamar. Verse 26, it says, Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah, and he did not know her again. It's a bit like King David. You know, after his sin with Bathsheba and prophet Nathan comes and tells him a story about this rich guy who stole from this poor guy who just had one sheep and David gets all angry, oh, he must be killed. And Nathan says, you're that man. See, Judah was blind to his own sin when he took Tamar and slept with her. He was blind when he condemned her for her immorality. But now... God has graciously opened his eyes. At Anayim, at the opening of eyes, Judah's spiritual eyes are finally opened. He sees his sin for what it is, and he confesses it, and he repents of his sin. Because he says, Tamar is more righteous than I. Yes, the way Tamar went about this whole thing was sinful and immoral. But really, Tamar was faithful to the family. And she was trying to provide an heir for the family so that that family line of Judah would continue. That's what she was doing. But I, I have only done her wrong. I mean, there's evidence there in terms of the immoral act. That goes without saying. And then besides that, I've done her wrong by withholding my third son from her. This is Judah confessing his sin. And this is a turning point in Judah's life. And really from this time forward, his life will be transformed. And his ongoing repentance is even shown by the fact, if you look at the end of verse 26, where it says, and he did not know her again. And really, moving forward, when you look at this person, Judah, it's amazing to see how Judah is transformed. In fact, I would say, the biggest change of all the 12 sons of Jacob happens in Judah's life. What we see as we move forward in Genesis is that Judah goes back to his brothers and his father. And he has faith in the promises of God. And finally, when the brothers are in Egypt, and the brothers don't know that it's Joseph 
who is the big ruler there. And Joseph demands, leave Benjamin here with me. It is Judah, this Judah, who says, I will take his place. I will be his substitute. You can keep me as your prisoner, but let my brother Benjamin go. My father will not be able to take losing another beloved son. Can you imagine this? Judah knowing he's not his father's favorite. Even later, he's not going to be his father's favorite. His father will still have his favorites. Yet, he will do that out of love for his father and his brother, Benjamin. This is the wonderful work of God's grace in a sinner like Judah. A person completely transformed by the grace of God. Brothers and sisters, here's one thing I want to remind you. You know, the guilt that we feel, especially, I'm not talking about misplaced guilt, but guilt as it's operating properly based on the truth of God's word. The guilt that we feel that way, when we're not living faithfully to the Lord, it's not a bad thing. It's actually a good thing. See, because the guilt, it's not meant to crush us down, but it's meant to show us that something is wrong and it's, got, and it's for us to then turn away and repent from it and cling on to the Lord Jesus. That's what it's meant to do. I forget which theologian said this, you know, but he, you know, likened this because it's from many years ago, the analogy has stuck in my head as he spoke about guilt. And he said, you know, imagine if you didn't experience pain when you broke your bone. That wouldn't be good for you, right? Because you wouldn't know that something was broken. So it's God's grace then to have that pain, to say, hey, your hand is broken. It needs to get fixed. And so similarly, that's the function of guilt. When it's operating rightly, it's God's means of telling us something is wrong. Something is broken. And we need to repent from it. And we need to turn to Jesus and depend on him. And as we depend on him and see what Jesus has done, then he will enable us to live for him faithfully. Friend, if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, I want to tell you, God is in the business of saving the most wretched sinners. Yes, that's the God of the Bible. I want to encourage you to see your sin for what it is. That it is vile and wretched. And no amount of righteous living that you may come up with will make you ever right with God. You stand guilty before God. And if you see yourself that way, then I would say, turn to Jesus and look at Jesus on that cross. 
Because the cross on which Jesus died tells each one of us of the vileness and the wretchedness of our sin. Because God had to send his son, Jesus Christ, to die for sinners like you and me. That's how vile and wicked our sin was. But the cross of Jesus Christ also tells us about the grace of God. You see, the fact that Jesus died in the place of sinful people like you and me, like Judas and Tamars and Jacobs and so on, tells us what a gracious God he is. Jesus died as our substitute on that cross. He took our judgment. He was treated as the unrighteous, wicked one. So that we who trust in Jesus would be counted as righteous in his sight because of what Jesus has done. That's the God we serve this morning. I know time has really gone. And I won't read uh, verses 27 to 30, but I'll just summarize it. There's the birth of these two sons now that Tamar has. And in what is described here about the birth of these two twins, it shows that Perez, the younger twin, will rise to prominence over his older twin, Zerah, similar to what happened to Jacob and Esau. And in this way, Judah's line, his family line through sin, much sin and deceit is remarkably continued. This is God's sovereign work. A God who brings about good from evil, whether it's through circumstances or even transforming an evil person like Judah. And you say, okay, so there's some hint here about this guy named Perez that he will raise to prominence. What becomes of Judah's son, Perez? Very quickly, just because I think this will be important as you see it in Scripture, just turn to Ruth chapter 4, verses 18 through to 21. Ruth chapter 4, 18 through 21. Now it says, these are the generations of who? Perez. It's the same Perez the son of Judah. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashlon. Nashlon fathered Salmon. And Salmon fathered Boaz. And Boaz fathered Obed. And Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Yes, King David came from the line of Judah through Perez, through sin and deceit. And ultimately, through King David, will come the King of Kings, King Jesus himself. In fact, if you look at the genealogy in Matthew 1, you'll see it all 
In fact, even Tamar's name is included in that genealogy of Jesus. What a gracious and powerful God we serve. Not only that he would associate with sinners like us, but as we see him saving and transforming sinners like us, all at the same time working all things in this world for his glory and for the good of his people. That's the God we serve even this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are a righteous and holy and just God, that there is no sin in you, that you will not tolerate sin. And yet we recognize apart from Jesus Christ, we would all have no hope. Yet we thank you that in your kindness and in your grace, you send your son Jesus Christ to die on our behalf, to take our place for wretched sinners like us, so that we would be counted as righteous sons and daughters of yours, so that we would be transformed from the inside out to live for your glory and to reflect your very character to the rest of this world. We thank you much for this and we pray that even this morning all that we've heard, as heavy a text as this may have been about the sin of Judah and his life, Lord, we pray that we would also see even against this black backdrop of sin, the wonderful, the wonderful, marvelous work of your grace in and through Jesus Christ and help us to live faithfully to you. And in Jesus' name we pray all this. Amen.